0: To, to ship, ship of, course. of course. All right, it's time again for the Ship Show, where we discuss build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I am your host, Paul Reed. So the build Engine on Twitter and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. dot com. Who is with me? Just fine, Paul
1: evening?
2: This is Yusuf, a scientist on Twitter.
3: This is Sasha at Sasha his on Twitter.
1: This is Pete. Pete Cheslock on Twitter.
3: are you Pete Cheslock?
1: Peak Cheslock or Pete Chesbot. Actually, Pete Chesbot might be my, my favorite one. That's a, that's a good play on words there.
0: <laughs> and we have another special contender this evening for this episode, Bridget Krumhout. Please Hi, Bridget. say hello.
4: Hi, Bridget Cramhout. At Bridget Cremhoudt on Twitter. Welcome. Thanks for having
0: me. How are you all doing this evening?
3: Oh, pretty good.
0: Yeah, doing great. I get
4: good. to be
3: home. This is pretty good. awesome.
0: How is the new gig, Yusuf?
2: It's good. It's awesome. It's um, keeping busy. A lot of learning. A lot of. What are you doing? Yeah.
0: Are you going to teach us all the QA things now?
2: Yeah. Well, no, I don't know about that. But yeah, learning a lot of a lot of QE, QA type stuff. So, but I'm still still doing DevOps. You know, I'm still working the. Uh,
0: I. Somebody's going
3: to keep
2: doing
0: DevOps. Well, QA is such an underrepresented part in DevOps, so I I am actually really looking forward to some stuff that you're going to share with us. We're going to drag it out of you.
2: (laughs) Cool. Looking forward to it. Yeah.
0: All right. So first up, news and views, as we always do, the first segment of the show. Our first item tonight is the community health systems breach. I don't know if you guys heard about this. Like 4.5 million records containing patient data were compromised. That was certainly an ouch, Yes. But I thought the interesting part of this was it was a heart bleed. They traced it back to heart bleed, which again, SSL is basically just screwing us constantly, is what I'm hearing.
1: Well, I don't know. I saw this immediately and was like, "Yeah, right." You know, there's this is this is a cop out. But you know, they Heartbleed hired. Is a cop out? Well, no. I, I thought it was a cop out that they were like, "Oh no, Heartbleed got it," and it was probably some like poor operational whatever setup they had. Oh, um, I get it. Yeah. But as I read into it, so first they had Mandiant, and you know, Mandiant's pretty legit. They had, um, and they did the analysis. And they said that they pulled credentials off of the Juniper VPN device. Which, if you think about it, like oh. hardware people are terrible at updating software, and I think Juniper was... Dude,
3: if I "I had hardware like that, I'd be terrible at it, too. I mean, have you ever tried to update the firmware on a router? F*** my
1: life. (laughs) Exactly. So, it basically uh, seemed... What, you don't like serial cable, Sasha? You don't like hooking up the
0: serial cable with your little whatever to, like, and set the... Set the right uh, bot on the little device to get the bits over.
3: I've done that all except for the actual like physical part.
0: Get, get the parity right because if you don't set the stop bit, it's sad times.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I will say this, which is, you know, I have definitely much more of a security mind now, working for you know, arguably a security company, and. I got to say, like, still kind of bush league, you know, they should have had some sort of two-step authentication or token or something because, yeah, Heartbleed, you could grab a cert or creds off of a device, but if I got something in my hands with a token, the odds that that, that those creds are worthwhile elsewhere drops pretty dramatically, so.
0: Yeah, you know, and the thing, I I hate to say this, but, like, I was almost going to actually make a joke about sort of healthcare records and sort of, like, everybody's going to find out that you had the flu once, but the older I get, it's like, people have things that, like, they don't really want Everybody's Chinese hackers knowing, yeah, yeah, it's not good. Or the NSA, for that matter. I mean, it, yeah, it's not great. You know, that actually is a great segue into our next item, hardware that is difficult to upgrade. There was an interesting story about the IPv4 Internet, sort of Hiccuping was the headline, but basically the issue was that the dark art of BGP on the common Cisco router that does that sort of thing for the core internets, which is they only have space for 512,000 routers and apparently that overflowed and so parts of those routers were like I forgot part of the internet Pete you have some familiarity with these huge <laughs> routers that are hard to upgrade and it's basically always a DNS problem or these things and, and this time it was these things
1: well I, I I only play an expert on the internet so I don't <laughs> I'm not actually gonna say that I know anything about this other than the fact that I understand business and that this is this is less of a technical problem other than cheap upstream providers problem, because the reality is, is, like, if you're, let's say, I don't know, who is it, Verizon or something? Like, if they don't want to update their core infrastructure and peering connections, like, do they really care about upgrading routers and switches and stuff? Like, they're just going to keep that stuff in and run it until it dies.
0: Well, let me ask you this, though. I mean, one of the articles that uh, we did about Dyn was referencing the fact that they kind of do continuous delivery deployment on their internet infrastructure and how they do that. You had a hand in constructing that pipeline to sasha's point like why is it so hard to upgrade the, this hardware why why is that
1: yeah why I mean, is it it's, always
0: the hardware that that the firmware right. that nobody updates that
1: right I mean if we're talking like the software the device like part of it's definitely going to be that you're kind of limited to the the vendor to provide you the patch so like the heartbleed one before But like, they
0: had but they had Cisco was like you're oh, yeah
1: take this patch and do it they're
0: gonna fail because the way we we, right. we tried to stuff all these routes in the size of a care so <laughs> sorry
1: yeah no I mean in this scenario it's definitely. So, you know, we had a lot of people who were looking at trying to do, like, automation for network devices, and mm-hmm. honestly, like, that's in the infancy. I mean, it's it's so early stages because the biggest problem is, is that there's no standard across network devices. It's, like, per vendor. So right. if you're going to have some sort of chef or puppet to do your networking stuff, it'll probably work okay if you have all of one kind of device, but you probably don't. I mean, maybe right. you do, but it's still, it's, it, you know, there's... A lot of issues around it.
0: Though. Yeah, no, it was interesting. The um, article ended with Is it time to switch to all the IPv6 yet? And oh yeah, my probably God. yes, probably
1: yes. Every time it's like I, the IPv6 people come out of the woodwork. <laughs>
0: I'm tired of hearing. Shut
3: up! Shut up with your IPv6. Shut Can't they just go to the airport with a High Christmas?
1: It's like the Docker of the. It's the Docker for like the network people. It's like IPv6 it. solves every problem. It's like it's no. Like, maybe it's, it's we'll, like, I don't know, but it's
0: like here's a 128-bit address and a flower for you as you
1: go through security. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna get so much hate mail from that comment too. By the way,
0: <laughs> I know. All right, well, next up we have an interesting article. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. Microsoft kind of changing their tune on how they talk about their own failures and their actually own operational experiences. Apparently there was an outage in Visual Studio Online 14th of August, and their post boredom post reads a lot like something you would read from Chefs or GitHub or something. I was surprised. Did you guys see this, this mea culpa, as it were?
4: Yeah, I was yeah. really surprised to see. See this because I didn't expect Microsoft to actually go into depth about the difference between a trigger and a root cause. That actually surprised me a lot.
0: Well, I'm happy actually you brought that up because it's wow. funny they I they said just, in the thing that they said what like. was <laughs> what was the root cause quote unquote which would make John Allspaw and all of the postmortem people very happy. Root causes in quotes, not an actual thing.
3: Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. nice. Yeah, I but know, they that
3: Microsoft was just in the business of oh wait no that's Oracle that hides everything and doesn't talk about <laughs> stuff. Sorry, my bad. You
0: have to pay the high license fees to get their post.
3: I'm pretty sure that you still probably can't get mm-hmm. it
0: I like they, they actually split it all like like you would expect they had sort of the not root cause, but that's in, in air quotes, right? That's actually in quotes in the blog post, but uh, the cause analysis and then sort of the what did we learn from the event. Lots of good stuff in here. Very impressed with what they're doing. And you know, um, we brought this up before. Microsoft is doing some pretty amazing things with Chef. And and to the point of their sort of changing their attitude, I think that's sort of palpable. It's it's nice to see stuff like this.
3: Yeah, I think areas at least in Microsoft are.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the last up tonight, we have an article about attire at the White House. Uh, if you're doing software engineering, maybe you still have to dress up if you're doing desktop support. Yusuf, you dug up this article.
2: Yeah, yeah, kind of an interesting article. I guess there's a new U.S. digital service That was, uh, I guess, I don't know if it's a new department, whatever, like, you know, like the FDA or FCC. But in any case, uh, interesting article and a little video about um, Mikey Dickerson, who I guess fixed uh, or was part of the team that fixed the healthcare.gov issues. And then, uh, you know, just talking about what it means to kind of do this type of stuff at, at a government level and, you know, for the White House and yeah. um, all that type of stuff. And what the, the thing that I thought that was interesting was the whole spiel about not wearing a, a suit and tie or, like I guess, business attire. The
0: whole big thing was, like, like is the, are the clothes a proxy for is this just a similar old... Stifly enterprise with subculture and blah blah blah, right? And and so he was saying, you know, people that are looking for jobs, like they actually look at, do you have to wear a suit and tie? And yeah. that was the whole, That's yeah.
3: Really unpleasant way to spend your day. There's yeah. A way to get around that.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh.
3: A lot of other things are unpleasant too, but like having to sit around in nice clothes and hope that you don't ruin them is a really way to spend your day.
0: Yeah. We should note, by the way, that Mikey, speaking of velocity, New York which is coming up in a couple weeks, he's going to be talking about his experiences in that department. So maybe we can ask him about what kind of attire he wore to the White House. Was Was it a hoodie?
2: (laughs) No, well, the video, so at one point in the video, he was sitting in a room with the president, so I guess he he had a suit on for that meeting. But the the rest of the um, the video, he had like a a button shirt and some slacks, and I guess he said, you know, that's T-shirts or not are pu- kind of pushing the limit but Where's the button? It, 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 it's the government whatever you know, uh, yeah.
0: well what if they can do the, to, to lower that bar in terms of making it not just wearing fancy clothes to wear fancy clothes I get I get the whole respect in the office and, and I can understand that but uh, do you want to have fancy clothes or do you want like um, healthcare.gov working I want healthcare.gov working yeah. so that makes sense to me on that note uh, next up we're going to be talking about monitoring and the nuances of monitoring a topic that we sort of referenced here on the show but so we're going to dig into it a little more. We'll be back in a moment on the ship show. All right, welcome back to Ship Show. So for our main Topic tonight we're gonna be talking about monitoring. It's a topic that comes up I think in pretty much every DevOps days. Heck, it's part of the CAMS culture automation metrics, the metrics part and sharing. And so we sort of reference it a lot. There's even a conference, uh, Monitorama. Uh, Pete, I think you know the guy who puts that one on. But we've never really talked about it here as a topic on the show. And uh, Bridget, you had some uh, thoughts about that and your experiences with monitoring and how that works and what doesn't work. So why don't we start with kind of for the, you know, I'm I'm the release engineer of the crew. When you say monitoring, I'm like, hey, does the file share have enough disk space? But I think you're talking about it at a little uh, deeper, level.
4: Yeah, thanks, Paul. I guess I've heard people say that monitoring is to ops as tests are to dev, and I would agree with that monitoring is what gives us visibility into our infrastructure as we're building it out and as we're running it. So I think it's definitely important to consider monitoring from the get-go when you're getting ready to release something, and then the monitoring also usually evolves as something is in production.
0: Well, So let's start with, I mean, when you say monitoring, that's one of the things, like I said, you know, my background very, I mean, ops-focused but probably less ops-focused, I know, than uh, some of the people on the panel. Like, what are the sort of minimum Minimalistic things that you... I mean, I can remember from a release engineering standpoint, one of the things I always used to say is you can tell the health of a build farm by knowing whether or not all the clocks on the build machines are synced, which is one of those things that sounds really, really stupid, but when you're trying to correlate log data between two builds that are run on different machines to see if like a network share went down or something, like having accurate timestamps on those logs turns out to be really important. So it was always one of these like actually you can sort of go in and see the health of the build farm by just looking at that weird kind of monitored metric. When you're talking about an ops environment, like what are the sort of core things that you think are like kind of must-haves because, like, if it's like, you don't have this, just go home and do something else.
4: It's funny that you should mention logs because, obviously, those are, those are pretty central. Those are pretty important to being able to know what's going on in your infrastructure. And I think uh, Ben Hughes actually said in his talk at DevOps Days Minneapolis, if you don't have centralized logging, just... Go set it up. I'll wait. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I always, the thing I laugh about that is uh, the centralized logging always had the uh, the joke about the printer. Right, Adam Jacob makes the joke about you could be secure by printing your logs on paper. And we all did it because we wasted reams of paper.
1: You know, the good (laughs) point about the centralized logging thing and with a lot of this stuff is that it's all so readily available with all these different SaaS services and open source solutions. Like, you don't even need to set up Logstash if you don't want to. If you have a few nodes, you can get them, you know, logging to a, a host, a site for next to nothing, really.
4: Yeah, there's, there's so many SaaS solutions for this that there's really no excuse. Oh, yeah, but they're just you're
3: getting your company actually to, like, agree to something like that if you don't live in San Francisco.
4: <laughs> sure, absolutely, but then again, your company has to agree to something, so either they pay enough money to somebody for a package that's deemed enterprise so that they feel safe with it, or perhaps they let you spend the staff time to set up
3: I right. think we're going to have to back such up such and actually, bad. like, you still have to be able to make the case for centralized logging for some people. I think that well, even that's something that people take for granted in certain parts of the country that... Well, like so,
0: standard. Yeah, yeah. No, no. no. So that, that's a good point. And I actually want to ask, because Sasha, it sounds like somebody's told you, like, we're not going to do that in investment. And I, like, I don't know why anyone would say that. But then again, I had times fighting people trying to set up NTP, so I get it. But I'm <laughs> curious, like, Bridget, what would you say are kind of the minimal, like, for someone that, that isn't super into the graphite and all the graphs and the information radiators that you can get with monitoring. What are the minimal things that you think you need to monitor at an ops level, not even at an app level? Let's just talk about ops.
3: Well, can I back up again here real quick and ask if we're talking about, like, centralized logging for application logs or, like, log parsing? Or are you talking about, like, centralized collection of data metrics on the state of your hardware? Because there well, are two different things that I feel like we're talking about here. and trying to get people to set up centralized logging and parsing for application logs and log files and general general is a big deal, but getting them to monitor disk space is nothing.
4: I think Sasha is correct that the stuff people really need the most is the things that they don't necessarily want to do, but if you're going to treat your servers like cattle and not pets, I mean, obviously you care if disk is filling up, but you only care about that if it's actually going to affect your application, if it's going to affect work getting done. So I guess I would say the bare minimum is you need to know if whatever it is, whatever service or application you're trying to provide is working. Is it up or not? Is work actually flowing through your system or well, not?
3: That's true, but that's an external monitor, mm-hmm. as but opposed it's- to, again, like log collections and things like that. And a lot of places don't have that attitude towards their servers yet, either. They actually have hundreds of servers in a data center somewhere, and all the servers have names that they can interpret. And if so you said you names. should install centralized log Pricing for all of those servers, you'd get this big sad look from lots of people.
0: Well, so let's talk about that a little more, Sasha. Why is that?
3: I don't know. Well, it's a lot of work for one, and two, people are used to being... I think it's really a classic. People are used to being able to log in and look at logs, and it, their perception is it would be a lot more work to set up something that would do something centrally, although I probably a lot of ops people would really like it or it wouldn't be hard to talk them into it. I think that there's no... Anybody who's still in that kind of situation isn't going to be able to talk the business into letting them spend the money and time to do something that's not essential to features, honestly. So that's
0: one of those, like, uh, if you use chef or puppet or something like that and you get configuration management then you can't go back in in terms of like I get it that's why I would do it but if you haven't had that epiphany it's hard to be like why would I store all this
3: I think that if you started to make that transition, you could start maybe talking people into it for new infrastructure, but I think it would still be hard to, like, get anything done for existing stuff. So let
0: me ask this, Bridget, like, in your experience, I mean, Sasha's raising a point, like, I totally understand, and I've had this problem with stupid stuff, like, you know, let's put NTP on all the build servers, it's like, well, that how long is that going to take you? That seems like a waste of time. I and mean, it's like, well, I have to parse your logs every morning, and that's a waste of my time. If you look at it from a system perspective, what are some of the justifications you found are actually useful in getting just minimal like let's not break our blogging
4: I think what you just mentioned about things taking up time is a pretty compelling point, and sometimes you just have to make the point after something has been painful. So after the nth time that you go through and you awk and grep your way to a marginal amount of answers, maybe you're not going to be able to make the case to spend the money for Splunk, but you probably can make the case to spend somebody's time on some ELK. Mm -hmm. What's ELK? Some Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana. Okay.
3: So my points were just mostly that I think we need to be sure who we're talking about Talking about when we're making sweeping generalizations about the state of systems logging and monitoring in the world, because I think it's easier for smaller or newer companies to actually have that attitude mm-hmm. uh, and to want to do the things that we're talking about. But I know we have a lot of listeners who are from traditional IT where who don't have nearly the understanding business side.
0: But gotcha. I see the distinction you're, you're making, Sasha. That makes sense to me. Oh, so, Bridget, you know, you are now working for a, a small company, but the company before was a startup that got purchased. Did you find those justifications for doing monitoring were a little easier because you were sort of building that in monitoring infrastructure in lockstep with the development?
4: Yeah. So, at the uh, at the organization where I was before at Eighth Bridge, we were doing a SaaS service and one of the things that I discovered is that if we wanted to send something to production but hadn't discussed in any way what it being you know what it working or what this particular say and point not working looked like then in the rush to get features out it would be completely possible to not necessarily have any awareness or visibility into what it would look like if it didn't work or if it stopped working I don't we got bit by that enough times a couple of times anyways, so that we started talking about monitoring rate at the get-go. Like, we're talking about a feature. Okay, what will it look like when it's working? What will it look like when it's not working?
3: Compared to what you're doing now, I guess.
4: Yeah. So you're basically saying in some sense,
0: you can't even have the language to have the conversation about whether or not something is working if you don't have some sort of monitoring because you really just don't have the words.
4: Right. I mean, you have to have some sort of way to tell automatically, not by a human going to the website and trying things, but you need to have some sort of way to tell whether or not it's actually functioning. And I mean, I've had these I've had these fights in completely different environments. In the past, in academia, I had a boss who thought that our environmentals monitoring was in perfectly good condition because we had a handheld probe that we could walk down to the data center with and wave around and find out if the room was overheating. And I said, fantastic, how will that wake us up in the middle of the night when the supercomputers are melting?
3: Somebody actually... That that was
4: legit. Um, unfortunately, yes. So then we spent a reasonable amount of money, not an unreasonable amount, when you consider the infrastructure investment in you know a data center full of supercomputers, and put actual probes behind racks and under the floor to tell us if there's water. If you have water-cooled doors, sometimes there'll be water under the floor. So that's an example of something that's not a log thing, but that's a, you need to know what failure looks like and have some kind of way to automatically detect it so that you can be
0: told. (laughs) So in other words, you're saying you really want to monitor the amount of water you have in your data center?
4: Especially if it's pooling under the floor, yes. So,
0: Sasha, I'm curious. I totally understand what you're talking about with, like, Enterprise and sort of being reluctant. But it seems like they have all the money. Uh, and to Bridge's point, like, if you've got all of these people and all of these servers that are doing things, you oh, monitor them. Oh, somebody's got all the them. money. But, um, <laughs> well, no, no, no. So that's that's my question. Like, the thing is, like, getting, like, they have the money. They could buy Splunk or whatever. What have you found have been the major objections there? Is it just a mindshare thing or, or is it something else?
3: Uh, well, with Splunk specifically, I know that a lot of places do use it, but they use it in a limited fashion because mm-hmm. it's extremely expensive. So mm-hmm. you need to—I don't really know what the what the pricing model is off the top of my head, but I know that it's ex- it's prohibitively expensive. So whether or not you're using it for just basic monitoring or something more,
4: I looked at the pricing for it when I was at the university, and at least what they were quoting to us, the price went up the more logs you put into it. So.
3: Yeah, I didn't know if it was nodes or logs itself, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we struggled with too, where where we are too. Cause We've had a couple of issues with the pricing models in the past. Where people are actively figuring out which nodes they can do without having Chef on, uh, which has made us rethink our stuff too. Because that's not the attitude we want anybody to have.
0: Oh, uh-huh, interesting. And
3: I think that that's an issue with Splunk too. So the more you put in, the more you're paying, and it's extremely expensive. So when I mean, you're paying for, you know, some really pretty smart parsing of logs and stuff, but the more you put in, and especially if you have application logs, and that's really where you get a lot of win from places, right? It's not just, like, having it be smart about your syslog, because, I mean, any halfway smart piece of scripting can be smart about your syslog it's the meat of your infrastructure that you want things to be smart about but that's a lot of bytes. those
0: are all good points I want to be careful I mean we're sort of talking about Splunk and how expensive it is and all that kind of stuff and that's fine like I actually haven't looked at the pricing and I'm sure that's one of those things we I mean we're talking about Sasha you know you were asking this like we're talking about kind of low-level logging right now we're talking about like Temperature of supercomputers and things like that, and things start to get more interesting when you do kind of application level log, right? I think so.
3: That's where everything gets interesting.
0: Yeah. So, so let me constrain this and ask Bridget. So again, pretend I'm stupid, which you won't have to pretend much. As
3: a release engineer, it's okay.
0: Yeah, I know. It's everybody can just just ship it. It's fine. What are the? What's the minimal monitoring on the on the hardware side? I should have. Like, what's the simplest thing that I should have? If you if you say I should have centralized logging, I'm cool with that. What is that? Am I am I Is there some way to aggregate that myself? Is it Logstash?
4: If you want the simplest way to do it and you don't care how much money you spend, you're probably going to want to sign a support contract with somebody and have them set up Splunk for you. There are some really good cookbooks and whatnot to set up the ELK stack, the Elasticsearch Logstash and Kibana that any competent sysadmin would probably be able to set up in not an unreasonable amount of time. So that would probably be worth at least checking out.
0: Cool. All right. And then, what, what, what are the top three things you should, you think, you should monitor on your hardware? The disk
1: space.
3: I guess Bridget, I'm do you even have it. hardware anymore? Well, I mean,
1: <laughs> we use the <laughs> hardware <Amazon. are> <laughs> here. Um-
3: I think. If I suppose it's still like uh, CPU and stuff like that.
4: Yeah, if, I think if you're paying attention to wherever your constraints tend to be. So, for example, in a past life, I was running MongoDB servers. So paying attention to when those EC2 instances were about out of memory was pretty important since along with, you know, lock percentage and a few other indicators, that was a pretty good sign that the Mongo servers were pretty unhappy. But, I mean, the typical constraints of, sure, CPU, memory, disk... If you're in a situation where you can do any kind of auto-scaling, one of the easiest places to decide to auto-scale is on, you know, CPU. So I would say whether you're using, you know, CloudWatch in Amazon or some other way to keep an eye on those things, it's probably pretty important.
0: Well, and then I suppose the next topic is moving up the stack a little bit, sort of application monitoring. One thing that I kind of wanted to ask, we mentioned that you've been working at startups. I've worked at startups as well. Like how early in, in the development, Should we deploy monitoring? What's what's the what's your feeling on that? Because you know at startups it's like, you know, just get (laughs) the minimum viable thing
4: out the door. It's funny because we had a we had a release earlier today where we discovered after some stuff was in prod that there was definitely a memory leak that probably would have surfaced if we had been paying attention to what New Relic was telling us. When it was in QA, so. Um, Interesting. Well, on the other hand, it didn't necessarily show up in QA, so it's possible that. I mean, it didn't show up anywhere near as gravely as it did in prod. So it's possible that we didn't have tests that were specifically hitting wherever the leak was. But that's the sort of thing that it's possible that we could have caught that ahead of time, maybe.
0: Well, so this is the big thing. Like I said, I'm, I, my experience with monitoring is like, hey, you should have it. But the more that I hang around people that talk about monitoring love, I guess, is the hashtag, they always talk about this sort of signal-to-noise problem, and you sort of brought this up, like, when do we alert? How do we alert? You know, there's the chaotic theory of things where it's like, are we alerting on the wrong thing? That seems like just a massive jumble that's like, monitoring is confusing, and you should do it, but interpreting it, you have to get a PhD in statistics to help you with that. Um yeah.
3: And yeah. You need somebody whose full-time job actually is paying attention to it, and that's. Um,
0: so happens. that's a question. Do you actually think that's the case? Do you need, you need someone more
3: than one person whose full-time job is paying attention to that stuff? Yeah, for a big site, yeah.
0: Okay, so uh, so how big? How unless, big company-wise? Like at what oh, at what I don't point? Know.
3: But I mean, until we have some, what do they call it? Heuristic monitoring, better heuristic monitoring and even that requires you to understand and continuously groom just like everything else like if you don't groom and care for your for your farm of stuff that you're caring for it gets out of control quickly and you you can't really it doesn't give you anything useful that's and that's why not to you know, bring the talk around to automation or anything like that, but every time I get somebody who's like, they're afraid they're going to be automated out of a job, I'm like, do you know how many more interesting things there are to do with their life than um, manage the operating system? That would be like everything.
0: Be staring at <laughs> plunk
3: logs. Right, so I mean, and I don't think that that stuff is very interesting, but a lot of people love monitoring and metrics and the heuristic monitoring and figuring things out and seeing patterns and making graphs and, you know, if you have less time spent doing stupid things, you can do interesting things like that, I guess.
4: I totally agree agree, Sasha. If you can automate any boring parts of your job away, you definitely should. Then you can do the more fun ones. And one of the least fun things possible is waking up in the middle of the night for something that you don't want to wake up for. Seriously. So I, I would draw a pretty big distinction between monitoring and alerting. Like I would say alert fatigue is a terrible thing. And I would prefer to have just tons of monitoring and only alert, especially after hours, on the things that are actionable and require immediate attention from a human.
0: Right. So back to the the bit about application monitoring. Yusuf, I know this is sort of starting to get into, like stuff you have to pay attention to in your new job now. I mean, how can we build uh, app, at the application level? I mean, uh, I think we've all dealt with, you know, let's grep through var log messages, var log mail log, find some things out. I know that was sort of the initial sort of swag at like, hey, let's look at logs that way, and they're very system-focused. How can you build applications? I mean, what's what's a good start there to instrument your
3: applications?
2: I think the, the first thing you want to look at is... Um... What's important to the business, just straight up? Because you could look at this thing, you know, left, right, front, sideways, whatever, and come up with different ways to, you know, pull data, extract it. But if it's not important to the business, you're just going to be wasting your time. That said, I think when you're either designing something from the ground up, or you're working on an existing code base, which I think most of us are, again, you're going to have to ask those difficult questions and say, okay, is this important to the business? Can we allocate some time during a sprint or however, you know, whatever you use for um, managing your work to to say, okay, we we need to look at these things. And yeah, I I do some of that. That's my new role. That's part of um, what I'm responsible for doing. And like I said, it just depends on the organization that you work for. For some organizations and you know, maybe startups, it's not so important, or maybe it is.
0: So you know it's interesting? I, I was at a client site recently, and they have just started to sort of instrument some of their build process. They're, they're trying to kind of figure out chat ops, which there's lots of ways to really do that. And it's interesting. I mean, this monitoring discussion brings up a thing about, like, how do you actually monitor what your people are doing, not in an Orwellian way, but in sort of a what does a release process actually look like? What's the communication? You know, and, and we talk a lot about when we talk about like actionable postmortems having like a black box or incident response, that kind of sort of monitoring of what actually happened. But this client had a really interesting solution from the application standpoint and sort of the, actually the build release standpoint. What they did is they said, well, we're going to dump all of the monitoring notifications into this particular hip chat room. And then they told someone for six months, 20% of your job is when there are issues or when there's data that the business wants to know that is not immediately recognizable or able to be sort of understood immediately. We want you to go back and sort of on your own, not with team, on your own post-mortem what monitoring alerted that would have let us know that and then they actually—that's how they elevated the useful alerts out. So, in other words, they sort of monitored on everything, but it went to this like trash dump. And then somebody who really enjoyed like the data analysis and the monitoring and sort of the sort of correlation between what the business was asking and, and what data was coming out of their automated systems—that's when they elevated certain notifications and things up to the business level where where they could be discoverable. That's what I was looking for: discoverable.
2: Yeah, but I, I don't I don't think you can have just one person working on it. Yeah, no, no, no they
0: they. They were just starting. It was it was just oh. a place to start. And so to, to Sasha's point, I don't think you're going to get someone in the enterprise to say, hey, we now have a monitoring team with 20 people to figure it out. But it's a good sort of initial swag to see, hey, at least what's important. I also think that's helpful to get the, the business to understand the value, like sure. what data is hiding in those alerts.
4: Yeah. Actually, um, at the startup where I'm at right now at Drama Fever, we have all of our PagerDuty alerts echoed into our Ops Slack channel. So we're mm-hmm. all looking at them um, and talking about them, you know, as they're going on.
3: Yep, yeah, it's pretty funny. If you go have drinks with Etsy, um, when there's an alert, all of a sudden they're all looking at their phones. <laughs> kind of
2: entertaining.
0: Well, it's like that. It reminds me of the, that scene in like Independence Day and stuff, where there's some like government meeting in the underground bunker, and then, like everybody's pagers start going off, you know, <laughs> yeah. as the president's speaking, and then and then they're like, oh, shit. you know, the aliens just attacked in Florida. <laughs> I wanted to ask the context of monitoring and sort of immutable infrastructure this is kind of a random question but I was thinking about it when you brought up sort of centralized logging and it seems like with technologies like docker and stuff I mean are we are we getting to the point where with containers because they're so small and whatever we don't really monitor them sort of at all and the only monitoring we re- we really do is of the application itself because that's all we really care about or w- what's that look like in a a world where we have sort of smaller and smaller worlds that we care about, right? I mean, we had virtual machines and we had to monitor sort of the time skew, you know, the, the time thing I was talking about with build machines, and now we have smaller and smaller little worlds. What's that look like in a, in a in infrastructure based on on that?
4: So we are doing that. We are using Docker and we're using EC two auto scaling pretty aggressively. So. We don't have very many instances with a very long lifespan, Mm -hmm. uh, which does mean that a couple of things, that we can't count on an instance being around later in order to dig back into the rotated-off logs that are still existing on it, Um, if you're trying to track a problem down days Mm -hmm. after it happens. uh, We also can't necessarily count on Like the same instances, even, you know, the same instances might not even be the ones that exist when we are troubleshooting a problem, whether or not logs have rotated off. So for us, like centralized logging is a really important component to having infrastructure that comes and goes like that. And yeah, of course, the container part doesn't really change much while it, or at all while it's up. But the more important part for us is that. Uh, the instances can be short-lived enough depending on, you know, our deploy schedule such that we really need to have more of a history in Kibana in Graphite to tell us what's been going on otherwise we have no visibility.
0: So, this is a really stupid question. If you're using something like containers mm-hmm. that are so small, do you, even, do you even monitor sort of OS stuff anymore? Because, I mean, it would seem to me that at that level you really, really only care about the application so you don't so much care that the disk is full, you care that the application just started not being able to right. So my point is, is if you decide you're going to monitor the application itself and not monitor the, the OS under it, whether that's a container or a full VM or whatever, do you just kind of stop caring about that mid-layer of monitoring and just go right to the meat and potatoes of the app?
4: We have some checks on things like that, you know, disk or whatever, but yeah, yep. for the most part we care about whether there are 400 and 500 errors coming out of our app because we're a streaming video site, so if there are 500 errors, there might be some sort of back-end problem with g Corn. And and if there are 400 errors, there's something really terribly wrong.
1: You know, I might even say to Yeah, I was just gonna say that um, even if you are not using Docker and kind of all the new hotness monitoring, like monitoring for like memory usage and CPU usage, I don't know. I, don't, I never find a lot of value to that because. I really don't care if the CPU is running, you know, at a certain amount of things. Like I should, because I should be monitoring for obviously application availability, and I should hopefully be monitoring for some sort of like performance aspect. Like, can I do X within a certain amount of time? I think those are real value monitors versus like memory usage is at ninety five percent. Like, well, it's a Java app, so that's okay. You know, like that doesn't tell me anything, and it's not actionable. So one thing I've always said is we're kind of building out some of our new infrastructure, and we talk about where do we include testing into it, and. And this is kind of relating testing to monitoring is, the way I usually say it is, like, when we write a test, basically start from, like, the monitor down. So, like, instead of checking that a file is a certain ownership... Like, can the app respond and, and return X by query Y or something like that? Kind of, like, well, start at the top and move down, so.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point because I know, like, I, like a lot of times, I mean, I, I was a sysadmin at an ISP in high school, right? And so I have a, a very small streak of that sort of old school sysadmin in me. And, and I'm curious, like, what the panel thinks about, what are just kind of bullsh**y metrics that it's like your mom told you to monitor on your, your server but is not something we should bother with anymore?
4: See, I sort of have to disagree with Pete about the the memory thing because it's not so much that you care if something is consistently eating up 95% of memory. Oh, well, that means that you're running the right number of workers and you're getting as much as you can out of the instance. I worry more about the delta. So if you have your memory use just shooting up, that's probably going to lead to trouble. And even if you aren't seeing failures in your app immediately, if you catch that before you start seeing failures in your app, then you can uh, avert disaster.
1: Yeah, you're spot on there. The delta is I would, I mean, I'd argue to call that a different monitor, right, because you're right. seeing the, like, percent or rate change. And actually, from the same aspect of, like, disk usage, you know, if the disk usage is, is at 90%, like, I don't care unless disk usage is going to get a, hit 100 when I'm sleeping. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So is that really, you know, again, someone who knows monitoring sort of from the cool people that talk about it, is that really the point? I mean, because in some sense, I remember growing up, uh, uh, Pete, you remember MRTG? Oh, yeah. that's
1: that's my jam.
0: <laughs> I know, like those shitty gifts that like, you know, you could, and you, we had, you could monitor, somebody actually, uh, Bridget, to your point about probes, they put a probe in the coffee pot and then they MRTG'd the coffee pot. <laughs> At the office, this was way back in, like, you know, late 90s, back in the day.
1: temperature or volume.
0: Yes, 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 yes. Both? (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um,
3: There's a game studio in Ireland that still has that. They've got, like, monitoring on their espresso maker. Yeah.
0: I'm surprised you don't, Sacha. I'm a little... Uh, Well, I
3: do, actually. I have PIDs built into my espresso maker, and the one I had before this, I modded to have a PID, which is a temperature control. But I don't have metrics on it. Put it on the internet. (laughs) Put it on
0: the internet. Come on. Oh, f*** No, but... But, but so my, my question now is, is it, it seems to me, to, to the point you were just making, is that it turns out that it's not so much the raw data that's interesting, it's that derivative, it's the trend line. That's really what we're looking for here?
4: Yeah, this is what you need graphite for.
1: Ah, uh, Okay.
3: Or,
4: you
1: know, and full timers, you know, if you have the time. I mean, if you have the t- again, a big part of that one, if you have the time and you know, capacity to set one up as well. I mean, I'm in an interesting position where I have myself and one other operations person, but I also i am trying to build and run a support team, and we have to ship an app by a certain day. So, I'd love to have graphite, and I know that Jason Dixon has some awesome code that makes setting them one up super easily, but at the same time, like. Ain't nobody got time for that. Like, I'm just going to pay someone to solve that problem for me and then come back to it later.
4: (laughs) That is a valid approach, Pete, but I'm just going to point out I was a one woman ops team for two years and had graphite and even upgraded graphite and migrated all sorts of stuff. It is
1: possible. You're way better at this than I am. I don't know about that.
4: <laughs> well, so
0: you brought this up, uh, and we talked about uh, this a little bit, and I wanted to talk about it a little bit more. Call it out specifically: human factors in monitoring. You talked about alert fatigue. Yes, so, that's what
3: you get after a day of alerts hitting your inbox, and you put them all into your filter to delete immediately, which is what I usually end up doing.
0: Okay, so how do you, how do we, how do we make alerting a more humane, humane alerting? How, how do we tackle that problem?
4: I think we have to avoid, we have to prevent what Sasha just described. So. If something is always alerting to the point where, you know, the developers who are on call turn their phone off at night, for example, (laughs) I've never talked to anyone who's ever done that, that alert is useless and you should just delete it because it's causing a problem because it's preventing people from paying attention to any alerts you do care about. My favorite there... story
3: that I've ever heard about alerts that are like bogus alerts or alerts that you have no idea what to do with is one Adam Jacob always tells that story about. He worked at a place where there was this alert that they would get every so often and it would be, all it was was, it's happening again. <laughs> and <laughs> they never knew where it was coming from or what it was for. Uh, he finally the alert is like, coming ran, from ran from into inside the developer the spark. <laughs> who wrote it and he was like, dude, that's still right. that's hilarious and uh, I, I don't know if they ever found out what it was for but yeah that's my favorite story of useless alerts
4: yeah, so in order to fight the in order to fight the fatigue, you really have to methodically go through your alerts and pretty much turn them all off and only turn on the ones that you actually care if that's right. broken in the middle of the night.
3: The the ability to dis- to discern between a metric and an alert is like the difference between I don't know, like it should be rudimentary, but it's not cuz some people and I've had this conversation with people. Yes, we should be alerting on all of these things and I'm like, "No, we shouldn't because nobody's going to do anything about them. They're just information, so they're not a f-ing alert.
0: There's this right. distinction between data versus information, right? And it sounds like you're saying there's a, there's a distinction between a monitoring and alert. Is that the same sort of idea? Data versus information?
2: Sure. I, I've got an interesting kind of a twist to this. From a cognitive science background, maybe change up the sense modality, because the brain tends to kind of, you know, there's different sense modalities. You can see stuff, hear stuff, etc. Um, so I don't know. Uh, instead of just getting email notifications get other types of notifications because your your brain's going to quickly fatigue on... Are you that. suggesting
0: electric shocks? <laughs> no,
2: no, but I don't know, maybe... That's what uh, alerts are
3: like when you can't do anything about them. Yeah.
2: That's true. Um, just something different, yeah.
4: I mean, if you uh, if you set up the PagerDuty app on your phone, then you can get text messages and the app going off at you and the creepy PagerDuty voice calling you and telling you that, you know, New Relic has a 500 on whatever. <laughs>
0: So Bridget, you know, one of the things we talking about with monitoring, like what do you think the evolution of quote-unquote monitoring is after something has gone live? What does that look like? Because it, it's weird now. It's in production, right? And we talked a little bit about sort of shunting these these it, it's happening again type alerts.
4: I think as much as you think you know how something will behave when real traffic hits it, or as much as you think you've predicted how it will actually work, it's pretty likely that you're going to need to add some checks or modify your checks once you go live, and that's fine. I mean, I'm not saying that you should come up with some sort of waterfall-style monitoring that you can plan everything in advance and never have to change it. That would be ludicrous. But you definitely, I mean, I think at least I find it to be the most useful to start early and then let your monitoring iterate as your application progresses. One thing that I'm not sure if this is what you were trying to get at earlier or not, Paul, but one thing that we sort of didn't talk about is like if you wanted to start and you have no idea where to start and you have no humans with any time to start, I guess. I don't know, probably the lowest hanging fruit is I would just tell people, point New Relic at your app, and at least on one of your instances. You know, get the free version of New Relic and at least try it. You'll probably see that you're getting insights you never had before.
1: And I think server monitoring is free for I don't know, at least 10 or 20 nodes. It's for, it's for enough to get you going to at least get some data out of your systems.
4: And I think you get a 24-hour window of application monitoring to a certain extent. I mean, not a huge amount of the error stuff, but...
0: Well, at least at, the, at that level, you can improve the utility, right?
4: Exactly. So if people wanted to try to, and I'm not saying New Relic is the only choice. I mean, I know AppDynamics and some other people have similar tools, but if you wanted to at least try one of those, that would be a way to at least see if having some sort of visibility into your application is something people in your organization like. Chances are good that they will.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, if your stuff I, isn't on the Internet, what would you suggest to those people?
4: I'm not sure how many of those tools offer, like, an on-prem solution. I imagine there's got to be at least one just that mean, does. It's just
3: something that somebody can install their own.
4: Right. Like It's an
3: yeah, easy win out
4: of. Or something like a GitHub Enterprise where they'll come, and put a box in your data center for you?
3: No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if I'm just a dude on a team somewhere and I wanted to try some monitoring stuff like this out, but I don't have any access to the Internet because, well, you know, my stuff's in a data center. What else could I use?
4: I'd say Graphite and StatsD might be an interesting place to start because that doesn't require anyone to really start shipping you logs necessarily. Mm -hmm. Developers who might want to um, throw some StatsD information into your Graphite don't need to clear anything with you ahead of time. You can just tell them, point here, I'm opening this port up to these IPs ranges and they can wrap their calls in StatsD timers, and they can at least start getting counts and timers right away.
0: Well, it's interesting. Uh, I know that for uh, applications that aren't web apps, that's kind of the amazing thing from the release engineering standpoint. I know that organizations have spent millions of dollars on engineering time building, sort of monitoring within their, their big like desktop apps to send crash reports, but also like metrics data, usage data, things like that. So um, that's certainly one thing if you have a web app, you're sort of already uh, ahead of the game there. But if you don't, it's not impossible. It actually can be done, which is sort of interesting to see how you kind of bake that into your app. But it is it is definitely a different, a different uh, sort of animal.
2: Yeah,
4: I mean, StatsD has ports in a variety of languages and does not require web app. It just requires code in order to do any kind of measurement of your performance of your code with StatsD. So I would say that would be at least a good place to look.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that monitoring is a topic that is close to a lot of people's hearts. I know there's an entire conference uh, around it, uh, Monitorama, and we've mentioned it here on the show before. It's one of those things that I think seems very easy to do, but uh, turns out to be actually a little more difficult when you actually dig into the details and get into the sort of human factors about how do you turn data into information and monitoring into alerts. Uh, This is certainly a topic we would love to hear from listeners on uh, tweet us at ship Show podcast on the tweet sphere or send us an email crew at the let us know uh, what you think some of the best ways to get the, uh, application monitoring systems monitoring going uh, what justifications have made people sit up and take note and go hey I can get some value from this uh, let us know via email or the Twitter sphere and we will be back in a moment on the ship show Welcome back to the Ship Show. So, for our last segment tonight, we are doing a segment that one of my favorites, but we don't do it very often. It's the uh, comment Lock, it's the opportunity for one of the uh, co-hosts to tell us how they feel about something in particular. It turns out that. Uh, this particular issue is something that fits well with our main topic that we just talked about, the issue of monitoring. But what happens when we're monitoring things that might be good for society, but it's aggregated from data that's not maybe societies to have? And what if we're not just monitoring servers? This is something interesting. So, uh, Bridget, you had some thoughts on this. What are we talking about, and, and what do you think?
4: Yeah, Paul, I thought this would be interesting to talk about because you actually tweeted about it earlier today. VentureBeat had an article about the earthquake that actually woke up a large number of people in the Bay Area, as measured by their jawbone-up wearable tech devices. And you pointed out that this is- Oh, unless
3: their name is Cheese Plus, who slept through the earthquake. Sorry, (laughs) I just had to (laughs) pass that in there.
4: And so Paul pointed out that is this a privacy concern? And I would I would submit that there are probably a, a lot more than one or two or five people in Berkeley, Napa, Sonoma, et cetera, who are wearing a job on up. So, I mean, the data is reported in aggregate. Full disclosure, I use the job on up. And it seems to me that if a terms of service tells you this data may be used for research or disclosed in aggregate, that's probably better terms than a lot of the big providers that we're all using. Using are giving us. If you if you consider the old saw, if you're not paying for a service, um, you're not the customer. You're the product. It's not entirely surprising to me that. Um,
0: but I'll challenge you on that. People did pay for a job. Oh
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. For something like Google, et cetera, they have much worse terms than we may use this data in aggregate. I mean, I fully expect I'm going to probably start getting. If they're doing voice analysis on this podcast, I'm going to start getting you know, Google Ads for monitoring this, that, and the other. Not that I'm not already getting those. And I question the utility of those ads, too, considering that when I have a valid cookie for PagerDuty and New Relic in the session where I'm logged into both, I get shown ads telling me that I should definitely try these services.
0: So. Well, the worst, I think, is talk about data sharing, uh, I've always wondered how LinkedIn knows... suggest certain people to me that I might know, and it turns out if you're logged into Gmail, the way they figure that out is they just, in an iframe, send a request to Gmail for all your contacts and then correlate the names. Lovely. Yeah.
4: But anyway, I thought that this was interesting because giant companies or moderately sized companies may or may not be doing things, TM, with the wearable technology data that individual people are collecting and sending to them. But there are actually ways that, at least for services like Jawbone's Up that have an open API, where we can actually use that data ourselves. So we can put something in the notes, I suppose, about how... John Cowie of Etsy actually has an open source tool specifically to help you graph your data, send your data from your Jawbone up to Graphite. Something else that's interesting about this is even if a service like Jawbone with their up is only distributing the data in aggregate, they certainly do have identifiable data about you. And it would be interesting, I think, I think I saw someone on Twitter or someplace talking about the possibility of data like this being subpoenaed. Where were you the night of you know, the earthquake when right. such and such a crime was being committed? What does oh, here's an interesting gap in your sleep data during that time.
0: Well, I'll give you an example that I thought was funny. Um, I was chatting with a number of friends and they had been at a party and and they saw a couple people sort of making eyes at each other and and they were friends with them on the Jawbone service because they were tracking each other, how how their workouts had been going and whatever. And they actually saw a spike in heart rate around (laughs) 1am on the little Jawbone graph, kind of like that graph of the earthquake. And then it wasn't It wasn't a mystery whether or not they had, um, well, what had happened. I'll just leave it at that. So maybe not even data that's not in the aggregate can be interesting to your friend (laughs) after sharing it. Well, so this turns out to be sort of a combination comment block and tooltip with the data graphing thing there, but uh, curious what listeners think. I mean, I don't know. Data in the aggregate uh, ostensibly seems fine, but I don't know. What happens when it gets used in ways that we didn't expect? Are we okay with that? Uh, I raised it because I thought it was an interesting use of that data, but uh, I'd be curious what listeners think. When does in-aggregate data become not okay to be using? Uh, where is that line? Is there such a line? If, if it's all in-aggregate, uh, is there some sample size that is too small? Again, Chip Show podcast. tweet us. Let us know what your thoughts are and we'll continue the conversation there. As I had said before, we are firmly in conference season. Lots of uh, awesome conferences going on. Big one coming up is FlowCon next week in San Francisco. Lots of really awesome speakers there. Two-day conference, day one is speaker awesomeness, and day two is open space and workshops. Cool stuff going on there ton of uh, DevOps Days stuff going on. Uh, you should check it out, DevOpsDays.org. In Belgium, Berlin, Chicago, New York, Toronto, Vancouver, Warsaw, and Tel Aviv. I should note, New York just came out. They uh, doing something a little different this year. It's all open space. And one day. Cram all the open spaces into one day. So if you're uh, in New York, that's actually right around Velocity, New York. I'm speaking at Velocity, New York. Uh, I should also mention the Atlassian Summit. Uh, it's a week before Velocity, speaking there too. And then also wanted to mention... Uh, uh, I know a couple people here care about this, the Chef Summit. Sasha, oh when God. is the Chef Summit?
3: Um, October. No,
0: October. Well, actually, I think it's the
3: first week. Um, I just know that because I have like a spot blocked off on my calendar for it, but I honestly don't know the dates. I know that I'm I'm like on the road constantly on both sides of it. So
0: uh, one thing I should note about the Chef Summit, it is in Seattle, uh, October second and third. But there's also the London Summit. Yep. October fifteenth and sixteenth. If you're over on that side of the I was gonna say country, but world. you can register for that getche.com slash summit. And then of course, you can check the show notes for other events that are upcoming. So from New York, this is Paul Reed signing off.
1: From Boston Mass. this is Pete signing off.
3: From Minneapolis, finally, this is Sasha signing
1: off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off.
3: From Minneapolis, this is Bridget signing off.
1: And
0: we will see you all in a couple of weeks.